Support for AHLA comes from EBG Advisors, a national strategy and management consultancy based in Washington, D.C., but serving clients globally. They assist the healthcare and life sciences industries with business strategy and program development, policy analysis, regulatory compliance, human resources training, executive compensation, performance improvement, data security, and benefits consulting and legal talent solutions. For more information, visit ebgadvisors.com. My name is Thomas Ronsky. I'm Director of Legal Talent Solutions for EBG Advisors. I'm a legal search consultant who specializes in recruiting healthcare and life sciences attorneys for law firms and for in-house counsel, uh, corporate counsel positions. The title of today's podcast is Health Law After George Floyd. This is a special program that the American Health Law Association is producing for Black History Month. We have two extremely distinguished panelists for today's discussion. The first is Ricardo Johnson, Vice President at HealthWorks at CareFirst BCBS. At HealthWorks, Ricardo leads a team of healthcare experts and strategists who are dedicated to creating a healthier future for everyone. Ricardo has worked in the field of healthcare and health law his entire career, and he's seen the business from both the perspective of an attorney and from a corporate officer. We also have Cliff Barnes, a renowned partner at the Epstein Becker Green Law Firm. Cliff is co-chair of the Epstein Becker Green Health Plan Compliance Group. He's been with the firm for over 35 years. In 2020, Cliff was elected a fellow of the AHLA in recognition of his career-long achievements, contributions, and his tenure with the AHLA. Uh, He is a distinguished career and leadership in the legal profession. So this is going to be a free-flowing conversation with two brilliant and distinguished minds who have a lot to offer. So I'm going to start off today by asking Cliff to tell us about yourself and your career and life path and how you got to where you are now. Uh, challenges and tribulations. That's how I got here. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, and I look back, uh, I've, uh, I would call it uh, a checkered career. Uh, I actually started out in, um, in health administration. I, um, in, uh, in the early, actually late 60s, I was going to college and uh, was in a uh, business program and uh, as I thought about what I wanted to do, uh, I decided I didn't want to be a Xerox man or an IBM man. And that healthcare just made a lot of sense because uh, it was diverse, it, a lot of different people, kinds of people from the janitor to the neurosurgeon were involved, and it had an impact on society. It made a difference. Uh, and so I... Uh, I went, I uh, looked around, I went to, uh, I found, I think, one of the only programs that had an MBA in health administration and uh, went, uh, went to Cornell. I, I, um, I, I had the fortune of uh, one of my criteria is uh, finding a school that can give me money. So, uh, so, you know, that's a needle in a haystack, but I did find one. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, went to Cornell and got out in hospital administration and started working with um, uh, the Commission of Health of New York City, uh, Lowell Bellin, back in the uh, early, actually, 70s, a long, long time ago. And about a year into working with him, and uh, he was the 
uh, chairman of the board of the Health and Hospital Corporation, which are the 19 municipal hospitals and the chairman of the board of the Health Systems Agency. And I was his assistant on those, on those fronts. So it was a great, great job. But about a year into it, he says, Cliff, you know, there's going to be a real, uh, there, there's going to be a tremendous opportunity in health law. And there's a real future in it. And so I'm 25 years old with a couple of dollars in my pocket. And so future for me in New York City was the weekend. And so <laughs> that's about as far as I knew. So uh, he's talking about the future in health law. I said, I, okay, but he was a brilliant guy. And uh, so it just caused me to think about it quite a bit. And uh, roughly about three years later, I decided, you know, that's a, it's a good idea. Uh, and uh, so uh, I set my sights out to uh, uh, find a law school that would have me and give me some money. Uh, and so I, uh, I was able to do that, went down to University of Virginia and uh, spent one summer in Washington and a summer in Houston and decided to come to Washington. But the firm that I went with was a, a um, it's a business. Uh, they were into business. They weren't into health. Uh, but uh, two months after I got there, the firm broke up. Uh, and, uh, oh, and, no. and, and, and literally, I, it was just like, what? Uh, and <clears throat> broke into two parts. And, and at that point, I had a little bit more ego than I had now. And I was kind of like, I don't think I want to go with these guys. So I looked around and one of the associates in my office said, Cliff, you got all this health experience. You ought to go to health law. I said, that's what Dr. Bellin said. So I interviewed a bunch of firms uh, and went up on the hill, just looked all around. And uh, I interviewed over at Epstein Becker and, and uh, hit it off with, uh, uh, with a couple of the partners there and said, well, let me try that for a couple of years. And 38 years later, I'm still at Epstein, Becker, and Green. So it's all to say that um, uh, at, there was a period of time there where you know things were not going well, so it seemed, because the firm was breaking up. I had uh, at that moment I had actually failed the bar, so I had to regroup on a number of things. But every challenge is really an opportunity, and uh, and so had that firm not broken up. I would not be in health law today, potentially. Uh, so, uh, so it it became an opportunity, and uh, and so as you mentioned, last um, actually now 38 years I've been at Epstein Becker and Green. I I do a transactional and regulatory practice. Uh, I focus a lot in Medicaid managed care. Uh, I uh, I actually started the uh, current trade association, Medicaid Health Plans of America. Uh, uh, back in the actually late 80s, I started working with Medicaid plans. Uh, and that's when Medicaid and managed care was just beginning. Uh, and now it's uh, fairly significant. Um, and then I also work uh, a good deal in post-acute. Uh, I've worked on hospital transactions, but uh, more recently the post-acute area I think is fascinating. All that's happening with home care and nursing homes and and uh, and how this integration uh, needs to occur, coordination and integration, uh, and um, and and so I'm I'm having a good time, and I continue to have a good time. Good. And how about Ricardo? Can you give us some uh, background yourself? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, and uh, um, in awe of uh, of 
of Cliff's career, but um, I'll, I'll tell my short story for, uh, for what it is. So, um, you know, product of, uh, of West Baltimore, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, went to college at a small Lawrence College in, uh, in Philadelphia, came back home uh, to study at the University of Maryland's law school, and uh, went through University of Maryland uh, has, a, has a house law program, and so there's a decent number of, amount of exposure. Um, before I came back to, before I went to law school, I worked briefly uh, for the CEO and the general counsel of Independence Blue Cross Blue Shield in, uh, uh, in Philadelphia um, during the time where there was a proposed merger between um, IBC and, uh, and Highmark. Um, and really got the um, the let's say the healthcare bug um, and the and the corporate bug uh, um, that year. Uh, it was a really really interesting experience, really fast paced experience. And so after I, when I was finishing law school, um, it was right after the um, or it was actually probably a, a year or so after um, the crash, uh, uh, the, the two thousand eight financial crash, and um, the firm, uh, a lot of firms are doing this, and the firm that I was thinking of going to uh, uh, had deferred uh, the hiring of their associates. And, uh, you know, you were basically sitting home. And so uh, I had somebody ask me, a mentor asked me, um, you know, student loans are a real thing when you're coming out as a, as a young lawyer. And so um, somebody said, well, you know, if money wasn't a thing, um, what would you do, right? If, if you, what would you do with, with your legal career? And you know, I said I really loved my time at uh, Independence Blue Cross, and really being, uh, you know, an advisor to people who are who are building things and being in house, right, being in the mix of the corporate um, world. I said, I, you know, I think I would do that. And so I, uh, uh, I didn't, I didn't know exactly how to to break into uh, being in house counsel as a uh, newly minted lawyer. So I, I should say. After law school, I did a clerkship for uh, Chief Judge Robert Bell. And so this was during this time where um, it, it was time to end the clerkship and uh, I was now deferred. So I wrote a, uh, a letter to about 15 general counsels and deputy general counsels um, in, uh, in the region. So I needed to stay in the DC, uh, Maryland region. Um, I had met a girl uh, and uh, um, we, we, we decided to settle down in, in, in this region. And so I uh, wrote, wrote letters, um, got about five hits on those letters. I uh, wrote, wrote letters and then opened my, my Rolodex and um, started making calls to folks who um, I knew with those companies. I'll say um, it wasn't particularly healthcare. Um, it was, I mean, they, they ran the gamut from T. Rowe Price and financial services to McCormick and Spices uh, and, um, and then um, to healthcare. So I couldn't move back to IBC, uh, but was general counsel and, and, and the CEO there. So let's introduce you to folks uh, at a, a company called Care First, um, which is the blue plan uh, in the in the mid-Atlantic region. And so uh, got that meeting, uh, had a, a good conversation with the CEO, general counsel, um, and was hired as associate general counsel um, at, at Care First. Uh, and, you know, began there, really loved um, being an in-house lawyer. Um, uh, the you know, the, the pressure um, that, that Cliff experienced as a, um, as a young associate, um, it, it, you put on yourself and, you, and it's still there. You, you don't want to, you don't want to fail. Um, you're working still a lot of hours, but you love those hours, right? You're working with the clients that are right next door to you. You're kind of building. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's 60% legal, 40% um, business. Uh, and uh, I, I really loved it. And I was put on an assignment that probably quite frankly shouldn't have been in the legal department, but we had received a grant from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation uh, to take a program that we had and apply it uh, to about 50,000 Medicare beneficiaries um, uh, in the state of Maryland. And so that was put into the legal department. We had some corporate uh, uh, organizational changes as our, as our general counsel retired. And so the deputy general counsel who became GC handed me this project and said like, you're gonna have to run this now. Um, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. And so uh, did that, um, loved it and thought, if I could make this 100% of my job, um, I would absolutely love doing this. And so decided to make a pivot into um, the corporate uh, setting uh, or sort of over onto the business side. And so I had another conversation with the CEO of Care First at the time, uh, Chet Perel, uh, and uh, we, we thought through a number of things that I could do in the company. And quite frankly, I was looking outside the company. Uh, and he said, how about you come work for me? And so I became the special assistant to the CEO of, uh, of Care First. Um, it was really a bird's eye view across the, the enterprise and, um, and across the industry. Uh, and did that for uh, a few years. Uh, and as Chet retired and uh, uh, a new CEO came on, Brian Pennick, he asked me if I would take some work that we had been incubating, um, Chet and I and some other folks at the company, um, uh, an organization called HealthWorks, um, if I would take HealthWorks and make it the, uh, the venture capital and corporate development um, and now innovation arm of the, of the company. Um, and so I did that. And so at HealthWorks, I, I lead a, uh, an organization that uh, has you know, venture capital responsibilities. We uh, have about a $120 million portfolio and investing another $100 million in healthcare startups and healthcare technologies, corporate development, where we do M&A for the company and strategic partnerships. Uh, commercialization where we build um, new products that are um, sort of non-core to the company uh, and diversify our revenue. Um, and then innovation, where we're looking at the next horizon of healthcare and how can we better support uh, the people we serve uh, and the industry at large. And so um, that's uh, probably more than you need to know about me, but uh, <laughs> there you go. You know, you know uh, we can come back to this when we get to the later segment where we offer advice and suggestions. But I noticed that both of you, both Cliff and Ricardo, in the course of your careers, have changed and pivoted. And you've, you've uh, been very um, opportunistic in a good way. You, you see something that you want to do, um, and neither of you were afraid to do it. Cliff didn't start off to be a lawyer. He didn't start off to be the Cliff Barnes at Epstein Becker Green. We know he was doing something else. And then the opportunity came. He goes to law school. He um, uh, goes to a law firm that they snookered him. They got the poor guy to join the firm and then they broke up. Uh, and then he, he turns and goes a different direction and, 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 and just, just, just goes and you the same way you, you, uh, uh, you start off uh, in one direction, you go to law school, you, you go in-house, you're an attorney, and then you see an opportunity to actually run uh, HealthWorks. They, they, they obviously, they, they know how to spot talent. And without batting it, well, I'm sure you did bat an eye, but you turned, you pivoted again, you went a different direction. 
and um, and we can go back to that. But um, what let's let's maybe what we should do we'll get into the kind of the bread and the butter of, of the, the 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 subject today, and it's um, uh, health law after George Floyd. And so we'll kind of start off from uh, a corporate perspective, and then we'll work in the second segment into the uh, law firm uh, perspective. But, um, but Ricardo, what changed in 2020 in your view? So I, mean, I think you know, 2020, as, as everybody knows, uh, a monumental year for um, the history of the country, the history of the world. Um, and particularly the history of healthcare. And so a, a, as we think about um, sort of what changed from uh, uh, a, a cultural perspective and a racial perspective, um, I think a few things changed, right? From a corporate perspective, uh, we are paying a lot more attention um, to structural racism um, in, uh, uh, in the country, both external to the corporate environment and internal into the corporate environment. I know at Care First, you know, we're looking at what percentage of our um, of our leadership reflects uh, the rest of our company and and the membership um, that we serve and the communities that we serve, um, and so, you know, the the the, the uprisings of, of this past summer uh, and I think the continued activism around um, uh, structural racism and how we improve it in this country uh, feels different to me uh, than. Uh, what we may have experienced in, in previous years, um, on you know, when we when we've had a, a, an incident in law enforcement, um, it really has pierced into um, the corporate environment, which I think is a great thing. Um, I, I think the other thing um, from a corporate perspective, specifically in healthcare, is when you had a, a conversation about structural racism happening um, broadly uh, in the country. And then you have uh, a pandemic that sweeps through the country that disproportionately affects uh, uh, people of color. We start asking ourselves about structural racism and uh, in public health um, and in the healthcare system, right? We saw the, the COVID-19 death rate was about four times higher for black Americans than it was for whites. Um, and uh, I think about either two and a half or three times higher um, uh, among Hispanic populations. And uh, we, we start to ask ourselves some questions about, you know, the, the foundation of what we've built um, has a lot of cracks in it. Uh, and I know for us, um, at HealthWorks and at CareFirst, um, we're just paying a lot more attention to it and uh, you know, leveraging the power of partnerships uh, you know, to, to, to begin to try to you know, fill some of those cracks and, and heal some of the wounds that we've had over the last, you know, decades, centuries. Excellent. And um, um, what has your experience been in terms of, of overall population health and, and investment opportunities? Uh, uh, are, there, are, there, are there things that you're working on, um, both in terms of the business and in terms of promoting people internally? Uh, you know, w w what type of special awareness, how does it translate into action at your level? Yeah, so uh, I think on the, um, so I'll talk about what we do uh, in the business. Uh, we have put a, a very large focus of, um, of both our investment dollars and of, um, of our time 
um, into social determinants of health. And so if you think about the, 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 uh, the disparities that occur in the healthcare crisis and the, the healthcare system, those disparities have their root in disparities that occur um, in housing and in transportation and in food security um, and in education. And so like, uh, like, a, like others are, are, are starting to do, um, we are putting um, a lot of our, uh, our weight and our investments into serving underserved populations and trying to swim upstream to help them. Um, and so, you know, Care First has committed $10 million in, in regional funding and addressing uh, the social determinants of health that, that affect diabetes. Um, and so, you know, that's food insecurity, um, that's, you know, health literacy, that's homelessness. And we're targeting six communities uh, in our region uh, to, uh, to make sure that we focus on uh, uh, all of the things that impact their, uh, the, our members' overall health. On the HealthWorks side, we're making investments in things. Um, so we, we made an investment in a company called Socially Determined, um, which is a social terms of health analytics company, because while we do believe it is, it's time for action and it's time for us to, uh, you know, as I said, you know, make an impact upstream for, uh, for people, particularly in underserved communities, we, we know we need a lot more data. And we know we need that data uh, a lot more organized so that, we, so that our, we're using our funds uh, productively. And so we're targeting, we, we, use the, we use social determinants of health data during the pandemic to really target those communities where we said, okay, for every, people are, are, are socially distanced, we were, people were locked down in their, in their homes. Well, where are the pockets where we see folks who have diabetes or who have conditions um, where their health would be really affected if they can't get out to the grocery store or if they can't take the bus to usually yep. get their food. Um, and so we began to target those communities um, in, a, um, in a much more direct way. Um, we're doing a number of other uh, things in the community, but I'll say internally into the company, um, we're taking a hard look at our diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and making sure um, that we have uh, uh, for the people of color in our um, uh, in our company, uh, that we're giving them opportunities to grow. Uh, we're giving them opportunities to uh, want to be hired by our company. Um, and they're taking some steps on the HR front um, as well. And uh, I'll say we, we're beginning that work or have begun that work um, and have a lot, uh, a lot further to go. But. Is there special things that are done in terms of uh, uh, integrating the, um, the HR department into the overall goals? Uh, and are, are there mentorship programs and things like that that, that HealthWorks uh, and Care First offer? Yeah, so there, there are, there, there are mentorship, uh, mentorship programs in the company. There are, uh, there's definitely goals that we are setting for um, uh, diverse candidates that we include on panels, uh, on hiring panels. And particularly in HealthWorks, so what I found, um, with, well, what is found in the spaces in which HealthWorks does business, which is, you know, the venture capital space, the investment banking space, the innovation space, uh, those, those, those areas, um, you know, I was surprised coming into them. I mean, they are generally uh, dominated by white males. Um, and you know, what I've said is, you know, I, th I think the number is either 94, 97% of venture capital funding um, goes to white male founders. Um, and so what I've been saying is either you believe that 25% of the population has 97% of the good ideas, 
uh, or we're leaving <laughs> a lot of money on the table um, and we're leaving a lot of people behind. And so um, we've invested in a fund, Sia uh, Ventures, who's had, who has a particular focus on uh, founders of color. Um, and, and, and you find that founders of color and, and uh, founders that are women, um, they create products and create solutions that better the lives of people of color um, and of women. Uh, and so we're putting uh, our money into into Sea Adventures. Uh, we we also uh, are starting a uh, a mentorship program um, in uh, within HealthWorks, or I should say, an internship program within HealthWorks, um, where we are uh, looking for high quality uh, candidates, um, and particularly candidates of of color and women who we can um, integrate into. Uh, the venture capital space, the innovation space, uh, give them some experience that they can put on their resumes, um, their junior and senior years of college that help them get the, uh, the beginning jobs in venture capital firms and, uh, um, and, and design firms um, that you know, maybe they didn't have the social capital to get uh, uh, before, but now hopefully it boosts their resume um, to, to, to give them more experience and, uh, and hopefully get the job. What do you mean by the social capital? So, I mean, I'm sure, uh, and I'm sure Cliff gets this a lot. I'm sure you get it, Tom. Um, you know, and especially you get it in the corporate world where, you know, you've got a, a vice president or a senior vice president of, uh, of something whose nephew needs an internship. And, um, you know, they, they know the right people to call. And, and even if you're making, um, you know, decisions squarely on merit, um, which uh, we do, and, I, and you are still choosing from a body of people who had the social capital, right? Had the relationships, knew uh, knew the 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 levers to pull to get their resume in the pile. Um, and uh, uh, for a lot of uh, uh, Black Americans, I say people of color generally. Um, historically, you you have just not been in the room. You've not known your community has not been at the table, and so you don't have the levers to pull now. You don't have the people who can get you into the room, um, and uh, we need to start creating that social capital for those communities, but also making our processes in corporate America not so dependent on that social capital. Now, Cliff, you have uh, 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 sons, right? And they're uh, in school and. Yeah. They're kind of at that stage where they're they're setting out. And they're doing interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that social capital you, you're probably seeing it, and in your own life, you know, you, it, when when you started off with your um, your career path, uh, you mentioned probably three or four times the issue of 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 money and loans, and 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 Ricardo did too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he said the the student loans are no joke when you're. You know, you're young and you're 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 thinking yeah. about getting married and getting started. Right. Real capital is also important. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, real capital and yeah. social capital. Yeah, but I think uh, I think that um, uh, Ricardo's, you know, he hit something really on the head with this issue of social capital, and it is a significant, significant issue. Uh, but when I think about what Ricardo did, is he created social capital? Uh, uh, by persistence. And for African-Americans and minorities, it it amounts to doing something that others haven't done Uh, and having the chutzpah, having the wherewithal 
to just keep on going, knocking on the doors uh, and, um, and uh, effectively making it happen. No is not a response, not a no is not an answer, but it's also being in the right place at the right time. Uh, Ricardo's previous experience with Blue Cross became something that could be leveraged with this current experience. So, it, you know, you're using what you have to make it work. Uh, and, um, and so it is, um, there is a lot to that because the reality is, is most uh, African-Americans, most minorities don't have the typical social capital. Uh, and so uh, we've got to take what we've got and leverage it. Uh, leverage it, uh, you know, like in all financial deals, it's all about leverage. And we've got to find the leverage uh, and, uh, and, and make that work uh, in order to get in the room, to be in the place. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's, uh, it's an uphill battle, uh, but uh, it is a, I, th I think it's a, it's a requirement. And then, then, then the other thing I would say, and reflecting again on on uh, Ricardo and the corporate world, you know, we're in different worlds, but, uh, uh, but we're still, we're, we're pioneers in each of these worlds. Uh, and um, the, the value of what I call luck, and uh, luck as I see it is um, opportunity meeting preparedness being able to see opportunity because <clears throat> opportunities abound. There are in infinite numbers of opportunities, but they come and go. And the real question is, can you see the opportunity? But even if you can see it, the real question is, can you take advantage of it? Uh, and to the extent you can take advantage of it, you end up being in places where other people look and say, wow, that guy is lucky, that woman is lucky. But it's really about it's about being able to see the opportunity. And, and, and when I think about Ricardo, he was able to see an opportunity. He was in, uh, he got into uh, uh, Care First, he started working, he got on a project uh, and he liked it. And then he began to look for the opportunities uh, and uh, created some opportunities uh, and then took advantage of them. Uh, and that combination is 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 critical, uh, particularly for uh, minorities, but for everybody. You know, so, one of the so, things, Ricardo, that I I'm sorry uh, that uh, um, that I that struck me about the social capital issue in, in African Americans or any minorities is, is you pointed out that the you know 25 percent of the population. Um, uh, being involved in 96%, I believe, was the fr of, of the, the investment positions. Corporations that aren't attuned to the, the this issue of social capital, of, of identifying talent that they wouldn't already know, are letting a lot of talent, it would seem to me, they're not doing themselves uh, uh, the, the service that they deserve. If the only people... I know are the people I already know, that, that doesn't help me. It, it, it makes me less competitive. It, it, uh, it, it, 
it it turns it turns the company into uh, or the corporate world into a, a, a self um, reinforcing chamber. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if if you can get those, um, you know, maybe you have to open things up to a degree that you you force uh, corporate leaders uh, and companies force themselves to look at a wider pool, both of talent and of overall opportunity to overcome that, that, that echo chamber, they'll be better off. They know things, they can learn things that are different and be more receptive to their customers. Yeah. And and it it takes an investment, right? I mean, it it really takes an, it takes an investment um, uh, and a vision for what you want to accomplish because you, you could look, you know, when we, we, you got you got you got to get the people you got to get the talent right to do the job and to do the job at the greatest you know at the greatest level um, uh, uh, that you can. And the problem that you see is that well, if you're looking at some resumes, there's some resumes of folks that have done some great things, um, but they haven't had the same experiences uh, because of some of the structural uh, uh, problems that we have in, in in our society and in corporate America. Um, and so, what you have to do, in, in my opinion, I, you know, there's no silver bullet, but like what we're doing is saying, okay, well, we're going to invest in bringing on some folks uh, to do this work who are extremely talented um, and they don't have the experience. So we're going to bring them in at the junior level um, and we're going to give them experience. We're going to invest in them and we're going to grow uh, uh, in their, uh, uh, we're, they're, they're going to grow uh, in their own development um, and we'll grow because um, of them and keeping them, you know, close to us. And some of them will leave, some of them will stay. But right, but we've made an investment um, in uh, uh, in diversifying that talent, um, both bottom up um, and top down. Um, and I think you've got to you've got to be willing to do both and willing to make the investment. Yeah, yeah. Healthcare, I think, is <clears throat> is a phenomenal area <clears throat> because anyone in healthcare has to deal with the population. Uh, and it's a public health issue, um, particularly in the insurance business. It's a public health issue. And, and so you're going to be dealing with minorities, all kinds of people as customers. And for corporate America that does not understand that they need to have some executives that understand that population, but not only understand that population, that uh, can identify with that population to create the innovations that that population can recognize. Uh, And so um, it is a business imperative uh, and in my mind, and I think corporate America is really beginning to understand that uh, because if they don't make the right decisions with respect to talent, they're out of business. And, and we have seen in uh, the, the, this last 10, 20 years, some of the major corporations, major businesses going out of business because they haven't been able to adjust. They, they haven't been able to make the critical decisions, the adjustments. That, and that's the, the one thing I love about business. It's all about adjustments. And no matter who you are, if you don't make the right, abis- the right adjustments, you're out of business. Uh, and so, um, so the the, um, the the care first of the world and other corporations are are seeing that, 
and bringing in folks uh, because they understand that the populations that they serve uh, uh, are diverse. Uh, and so to be competitive, to be able to do the things that need to be done, uh, they need uh, a more diverse talent pool. And, and so I think the enlightened companies are, are, really, are, really, are really seeing that. Just to add on that, and I, and I would say Cliff's exactly right. Um, and, and as I said, Tom, right, both bottom up and, and, and top down. Um, and it starts, uh, and I should, full, full disclosure, you know, Cliff used to be my boss as a, uh, as a board member, um, uh, a former board member of, uh, of Care First. Uh, but but you, need that, you need that type of leadership right at the top of organizations who are then asking uh, the, you know, the right. executives of the corporation and holding them accountable um, to making sure you make those pivots uh, uh, for those who are closest to it, who see those pivots coming, you know, the, need, the need for those pivots coming. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it takes a village. Um, and um, it it is uh, it's a, it's about <clears throat> identifying having the corporations identify the talent. It's about holding them accountable, uh, uh, so that they create the opportunities. The opportunities are out there, uh, but uh, but enlightened executives uh, and and I can talk specifically about Care First. Brian Pennick is enlightened. Uh, and uh, and so this opportunity, I think that that uh, Ricardo has a tremendous opportunity, but it's an opportunity for him. Uh, I mean, they picked the right guy for the situation, uh, and um, and so uh, so it, it's uh, it, it it's all of that. It takes all of that. Uh, it takes the top down, the bottom up, and then it takes the people inside. Uh, to be able to also look down and pull people up. It remains, a, it's a constant loop uh, in order to create opportunities uh, because as you create opportunities, other create opportunities are created that you could take advantage of. So um, it sounds like uh, in your experience, things um, uh, in the post-George Floyd era, in the corporate world, you're seeing specific steps that are being taken. And yeah, uh, well, I think I think it it, it it was a it was a magic moment in my view. Uh, you know, the combination of <clears throat> the pandemic, uh, but also people could see uh, in real time because of technology, because of the iPhone, uh, uh, could see. A murder, uh, and and uh, and a fairly callous murder, uh, and it was upsetting when you look at it. And and what was interesting is the person that was taking the video was a little white girl. <laughs> That's who the video taker was. Um, and so again, it takes a village. Uh, she was in the right place at the right time, and and kept that video, uh, that camera going. But it wasn't for that camera, that event would not have been in any way as impactful. Uh, those events have occurred for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, unfortunately, uh, black and minority folks have had uh, 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 experiences with police that have ended up with their death. Uh, and typically what happens in those situations, as it happened with George Floyd, uh, the, the police will say it's their fault, they were resisting, but then 
the the uh, the, 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 the 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 recording then tells a different story, and then they have to they have to pivot. But here, corporate America, and and I think it was really the demonstrations, the demonstrations that occurred, where everyone was involved in those demonstrations for a significant period of time made an impact and that was all over the planet there were demonstrations in india there were de demonstrations in england there were demonstrations in chicago in washington in california and so it caused people to stop and look at it uh that there's a there's a dysfunctional relationship and there's some things that we have to do there's a lot that needs to be done uh but um uh but but i i do think that uh, corporate America is is making is making a difference, and and you know when you think about just to pivot to uh, look at something like the name of the Redskins, people have been talked about that for years and years and years. But when the corporation said it's time to change because I'm going to move my money, all of a sudden, all of the issues that were issues before <laughs> they're resolved. You know, we're going to change this name, and we're going to even have a temporary name uh, until we find the name. So. Corporations are are they, they play a significant role, and so positions like uh, uh, Ricardo's is I mean it it creates it makes it enables these corporations to pivot the way that they're pivoting because there are people inside that are fundamentally saying that you know we got to do something. Well, I uh, think so that that's absolutely true. And uh, what we're, we're going to do, that was uh, the the corporate perspective uh, that, that Ricardo was given us and that uh, Cliff has been able to add to. Um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to begin the discussion of the law firm world, which is a different world, but it's, it's an interrelated world. And uh, so this is Thomas Ronsky uh, with EBG Advisors. We'll be back in a moment. 